One of the things that I remember back uh, growing up was really Monday night football. Uh, we had a good time watching the Monday night football, and we all had our favorite players and our favorite teams that we cheered for. And my dad's favorite team was the Broncos, and so that was not our favorite teams. Um, because what's the fun of that, right? Uh, but uh, my brother liked the Cowboys. I, I cheered for the 49ers. I now cheer for the Broncos, just to set the record straight. But... Um, it was a lot of fun. The other thing that I remember growing up, though, and I don't know if this is still as popular as it was then, but everybody on Monday would wear a jersey to school, a football jersey for a player. I don't know. Those of you who are closer to my age, does that ring a bell? You all had your favorite jerseys? So I had my jersey, so my 49ers jersey with Jerry Rice. And I am going to argue that Jerry Rice was the greatest receiver of all time. I know that there's been some debate on this, but I'll, I'll agree with Michael Irving when he says that if anyone disagrees, they're out of their mind. So, <laughs> But I would like to imagine that when you got on the football field, if you were getting on the field with Jerry Rice, you probably walked on the field with a little bit of confidence with a little bit of, I get to play with that guy. I, I, this is going to be fun. You know, um, Jerry Rice had the most career receiving yards, 22,895. I think I'd be happy with 22,000 of anything. <laughs> most career receptions, 1,549. He had uh, the most career touchdowns, most career all-purpose touchdowns, uh, other than a kicker, because kickers get a lot of points, he has the most points. Jerry Rice was an extraordinary football player, and I would imagine that when you got on the field, there was an air of confidence. The other thing I remember was Technobowl. Does anybody play Technobowl? And uh, I, the worst day of, of my Technobowl career was the day that I got Jerry Rice injured because I'd thrown to him every game, every play, until I beat my brother. But it was, it was a bad day. Jerry Rice was extraordinary. But we serve a God who is more extraordinary than even the most extraordinary football player. And we need encouragement at times. There are times where it gets hard, where we can't quite push through. And we need that encouragement. And the encouragement I want to give you is the encouragement that you are playing on the team with the greatest God ever, the only God ever the God of the universe. I want you to take time today to consider our Lord. Think about who God is. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 2. And Haggai really gives a message. And the message is, just think about who God is. As you go into this stage, think about who it is that you serve. Consider your Lord. Consider the fact that our God is the God of the universe. Consider the fact that our God is sovereign. And consider the fact that our God is a promise keeper. We sing about that in the song Waymaker. Our God is a promise keeping God. And I am trying to figure out where to stand so this doesn't block me. We'll try over here. Our God is a promise keeping God. God. Let's read Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 20. 
The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Remember what's going on in the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai takes place in Judea, in what used to be the nation of Judah, in the area of Jerusalem. Haggai takes place after the Israelites had been sent back to the land. Remember, they had been conquered, had been exiled to Babylon. After they return, they're told to rebuild the temple, and they don't really get much progress done. And Haggai is written to a group of people who have not made any progress on the task. God says, get to it. That's Haggai chapter one. Get to work, get to it. They get to work, they start making progress. And then Haggai chapter two is really what I would call the encouragement chapter. You guys have started this, you're doing well. I want you to really buckle down and do it because I'm with you. That's the message God has. And so we begin in Haggai chapter two with verse 20 by telling us again the date. It came a second time on the 24th day of the month. In other words, the previous prophecy that we studied last week, same day. Two prophecies in one day. Don't worry, I'm not planning two sermons for one day. We're going to get through this one. But two prophecies in one day. Last week, we ended with the hope of blessing. And today we continue. What I want you to remember is that Haggai is speaking to a people who are struggling to finish the temple. They've now begun work again, but they need encouragement. Finish the task. And so Haggai starts with his prophecy in verse 21. And in verse 21, what Haggai tells the people is consider the fact that we are serving the God who rules the entire universe. Verse 21 begins, Haggai, tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, this. Tell him that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. This is what's called a merism. You've probably heard that word before if you've been in the service the last four weeks because I've used it three of the four weeks because Haggai uses a lot of merisms. Merism is where you take this side and this side and everything in between. So when Haggai says, God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's saying, look in the sky, whatever you see, look on the earth, whatever you see, and everything in between, God is over that. The idea of shaking is the idea of power, going to exercise control, going to exercise his rule. Some of you know that I can be a pain. Well, Emily knows really well that I can be a pain. Um, and one of the things that I enjoy doing that she can just about bet that I'm going to do it, is if we're out on a hike and we come up to a footbridge, like a rope bridge or something like that, she can almost guarantee that I'm going to get out in the middle of the bridge and start jumping and shaking the bridge up and down to show my dominance over this bridge. 
because I can. But my shaking of the bridge is nothing in comparison to God's power to shake the heavens and the earth. Actually, uh, at this time, the people probably could envision something of great power. I'm going to take you down a, a stroll of history. Remember, Cyrus was the ruler of the Persian Empire who sent the Jews back to Jerusalem. After Cyrus died, while the Jews were supposed to be rebuilding the temple, after Cyrus died, his son, Cambyses II, took the throne. He went down to Egypt, and on his return trip from Egypt, he got a wound, like an arrow, in the thigh that became infected with gangrene and ended up killing him. So the brother of Cambyses II... Baradia took the throne. But that happened in 522 BC. This was written in 520. Baradia took the throne, but one of the generals, a man named Darius, the man who is mentioned in the book of Haggai, overthrew Baradius, took his military generals, came in, overthrew the Persian royal line. The people weren't thrilled because they had Cyrus in his line as king. And the people rebelled. And in the time span of one year, Darius squelled, squashed every rebellion in the known empire, which was a huge empire. In one year. If you think about that in terms of something of that scale, to move your army across the land, that would shake the earth. The people of Israel knew what it was like for power to be exercised. And Haggai says, God will shake the heaven and the earth. Not just the rumble of chariots, Zerubbabel, but everything is under God's power. You see, God's plans are bigger than we can imagine. God's power is bigger than we can imagine. And God's scope is bigger than we can imagine. To me, one of the most interesting verses is Luke 24, 27. I find this verse to be completely fascinating. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus, walking back on the road from Emmaus, encounters two of the disciples and speaks with them. And this is the summary statement of Jesus' conversation. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. God's plans are bigger than we can imagine. His power is bigger than we can imagine. His scope is bigger than we can imagine. Let me take you on the story of scripture. I want you to listen and hear about God's plans, about God's power, and about God's scope. If we begin in Genesis, we see God creates Adam and Eve. For what purpose? To be his representatives to creation itself. It says God created them in his image as his representatives to bear the image of God to creation. Adam and Eve fell. 
They sinned. They ate of the fruit, entered into sin. If you are representing the God of the universe and you sin, you have failed. There's just, that's, that's really simply what it is. You were created for one purpose. You had one job. You failed. God promised at that point that he would send a savior, that he would send a redeemer, that he would send somebody who would fix the failure of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve depart the garden. People come from Adam and Eve, generations from Adam and Eve, continue regularly to fail God. God says, live this way, the people fail. The people fail so badly that God sends a flood to wipe out the sin that's in the earth. Because the people cannot represent God properly. They fail to bear God's image. After the flood, what is the first thing that we read about the people doing? They build the Tower of Babel in order to defy God. People fail God. God calls out Abraham. Says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. I will make this redeemer come from your line and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. What does Abraham do? Takes the handmaid, Hagar, fails time and time again. The book of Genesis is a book of failures. We get to Exodus. God calls out a certain people and says, I want you to be a nation of priests to represent me to the world. Remember, what was God's original intention for Adam and Eve? To represent God to creation. God calls out a nation whole nation to represent me to the world. What does Israel do at the exact time that God is giving his commands? They fall into idolatry. They fail. Scripture is full of stories of people who fail, people who fail, and people who fail. But God's plans are bigger than individual failures. God's power can overcome individual failures, and God's scope is bigger. God sends prophets who prophesy and tell of a future redeemer who will solve the problem of sin. And then finally we get to the gospels and we see that redeemer, Jesus Christ, who comes to earth, dies on the cross in payment for our sins, raises again three days later, and ascends into heaven. God births the church. The church is tasked with representing the Savior, God's representative to the world. And we're promised in Revelation that one day Jesus will come again and take his place as the king, representing God. The story of Scripture is a story in immense, broad scope. It shows that God's plans are enormous. Can you imagine what Moses must be thinking today? as he sees how God's plan has unfolded thus far. Can you imagine what some of the prophets, like Isaiah, now think as they saw the one who was beaten so badly he could not be recognized, and they saw that come to fulfillment in God himself as Jesus on the cross. God's plans are huge. We can't comprehend them. When I think about Moses, when I think about Isaiah, what strikes me 
is that the same God who worked to bring things about in their time, the same God who worked through them is the same God who's promised to work through me. I don't know what God's plans are for me, but I wonder what I'm going to think 10,000 years from now as I look and see how God's plan has unfolded. I want you to take a second. I want you to carefully consider God's plans, his power, his scope. Think about your life. How is God working in your life? Today's Father's Day. Think about the investment that maybe you have made in your children. Maybe in others' children. You don't know where that investment is going to go. But God does. He will use it. The message that Haggai had for Zerubbabel was one. That you need to consider the fact that you're serving the God who shakes heaven and earth. He rules the entire universe. Not just the Medo-Persian Empire. In verse 22, Haggai reminds Zerubbabel to consider the fact that we are serving the God who sovereignly directs. Consider the fact that we're serving the God who sovereignly directs. I suspect that for Zerubbabel, Darius was the most powerful person he could have imagined. His power probably seemed unsurpassable. Imagine squashing every single rebellion in the known world within the time span of one year. I think that would be hard to see anyone accomplish today. And we have aircraft that can cross the world pretty fast. In a chariot, that's impressive. But look at verse 22. Look at what God says. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. Earthly rulers are subject to God's control. Earthly rulers are subject to God's control. Look at Proverbs 21, verse 1. You can turn there in your Bibles. Proverbs 21, 1. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water, that he channels towards all who please him. In the Lord's heart, the king's heart, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Growing up, we grew up, Emily and I grew up in Colorado. Emily grew up on the farm, I grew up in the town. And if you went out to the farm, and we go out to the farms often, you have the big river, and then the farms spread out around. Coming out of the river, you've got ditches. And those ditches are made to deliver water to the fields. And then once the water gets onto the farmer's property on the ditch, you would cut a trench to your field, to your individual fields. And then once you got to the field, you cut a smaller trench running the length of the field. And then once you got that running the length of the field, you'd take out siphon pipes and you'd siphon water out of the trench into the individual corn rows. And a farmer would do this every season. And he would run his siphon pipes, not every day, but whenever he needed to water, he'd have to walk the corn row, 
run the siphon pipes, get them all flowing, and flood irrigate the farm. The picture that we're given here in Proverbs is that the way that you channel water, we direct water, we move water where we need water, that is the way God directs a king's heart. Where do you need it to be? I'll move it there. God is the one who sovereignly rules the earth. Earthly rulers are subject to God's control. We should pray for our leaders. Why? Because they're not doing it on their own. God is sovereignly in control. That also, I want to give you, if they do something we don't agree with, that's only by permission of God. God can change that. We should pray because God is the one who sovereignly is controlling it. But it's not just king's hearts. It's human events. Human events, our individual hearts, are subject to God's control. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses 25 through 27 in Isaiah 14. This is God speaking of the Assyrian Empire. Isaiah 14, starting in verse 25, it says, I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? God exercises power over rulers. God exercises power over nations and all within those nations. But it's not just over rulers. It's not just over individuals. The spiritual realm is subject to God's control. Turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 15 and 16. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is the one who created the spiritual realm. He is the one with authority over the spiritual realm. He's the one that holds it together. This is huge. Every aspect of creation is subject to the sovereign direction of our God. I know that some people pray for you know, protection from an angel or a guardian angel. And I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I'll tell you what I do. I just pray for God's protection. Because I'm just going to go straight to the source. God's the one who sovereignly rules over everything. We don't have to worry about human kings. We don't have to worry about individuals. We don't have to worry about the spiritual realm. We focus on our God who sovereignly directs. Action step, we're going to take a minute and we're going to pray.
And I want you to do something. I want you to admit to God that while you often seek control, you in fact don't have it. That God sovereignly directs. So we're going to actually take a minute here. I want you to quietly pray and tell God about his sovereignty and your submission to it. Father, we have a lot going on this week, but you are the God who sovereignly directs. And so I pray that we would turn control to you and trust you in it. That it would be more of you and less of us as we know that you turn the hearts of individuals. You are the one who's in control of every aspect of life. Father, nothing happens without your permission. And so we pray that you would bless. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in Haggai, I want us to look finally at verse 23. And what I want you to see is the command to consider the fact that we're serving the God who's made us a promise. In verse 23, Zerubbabel was given a wonderful promise, a promise that was fulfilled in the Messiah who fulfills all glory. The verse says, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. This verse is a hard verse to interpret, a hard verse to make sense of. It may help for us to look back, and I'm not going to actually go there, I'm going to tell you the story, to look back at Jeremiah chapter 22. In Jeremiah chapter 22, the prophet Jeremiah is prophesying to Jehoiachin, king of Judah. You see, on March 15th, 587 BC, Jehoiachin was captured by Babylon. Jehoiachin was an evil king, an idolatrous king, and he was captured by the king of Babylon. And this, in verse 24 of Jeremiah 22, is what God says to Jehoiachin. Jeremiah 22, verse 24, God says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. God says to Jehoiachin, you are no longer king of my nation. Even if you were the ring, the signet ring on my hand, I would pull you off. Now look back at Haggai chapter, 20, or chapter 2, verse 23. God says to Zerubbabel, I will make you like a signet ring. Zerubbabel, great-grandson of Jehoiachin, actually grandson of Jehoiachin, I told your father that he was no longer eligible to be king of my country. But you have begun obedience. You started rebuilding the temple. 
and I'm going to place you back in a position of favor. Jehoiachin did not become king. Remember, Darius was already king. But if we look forward to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, this is one of those that I bet you skip over quite a bit. It's a genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud. And it goes on to verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And you thought these genealogies were useless. Zerubbabel became the great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. God made a promise to Zerubbabel. I will make you like a signet ring. I will restore the position of blessing to you. And God honored that promise through none other than Jesus the Messiah, the one who brought true peace between man and God the one who will rule eternally. We serve a God who's made a promise. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33 speak of a new covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah looked forward to, the new covenant looked forward to a time when God's law would be written on the hearts of, a time after Jesus died and rose again, when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell our hearts so that no longer is the Old Testament law what we have to follow, but instead the law of Christ, the law of love written by the Holy Spirit on our hearts becomes the law to follow. The new covenant is a covenant with Israel in Jeremiah, but it has blessings for us today as we participate in it. God kept his promise to Zerubbabel. He provided Messiah. He provided a new covenant, a new covenant that has been inaugurated. And the blessings promised in the new covenant are themselves worth remembering. Let me put this all together for us just momentarily. At the end of Haggai's ministry, they have started constructing the temple. They've made good progress now. It started as rubble. They have really begun the task. But it's hard work. And the future might be in sight, but it's hard work. And the message that God has for Zerubbabel, remember who you're serving. You're serving the God of the universe. Don't try to do this on your own. The God of the universe is doing this. Remember, he's the sovereign ruler of nations. And then he makes a promise. Zerubbabel, I will bless. I will make you like my signet ring. The blessing that I had pulled away, I'm now giving back. And today we can take strength. Because one... We serve that same God, that God of the universe. 
We serve that same God, that God who sovereignly rules, and we can enjoy the promise made because we now look back on Messiah. The way we look back on Messiah is through something that we call the Lord's Supper. My action step for you is to join me today in celebrating and remembering through the Lord's Supper. I want you to remember that Jesus came to earth, descended from the line of kings, Zerubbabel, died on the cross, sinless for our sins, but rose again three days later and gave the promise anybody who accepts that offer of salvation, accepts that payment on the cross, can have eternal life, can participate in the blessings of the new covenant. We get to be part of this, and today we celebrate. I'd like to ask our deacons to come forward so we can celebrate together the Lord's Supper. This is the Lord's Supper. It is a time that is instituted by God for the purpose of remembering what Jesus did on the cross. It's not our church's supper. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior and you're walking with him, we invite you to participate with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promises that you made. And your promises are sweet. Starting in Genesis, even up through Haggai, the promise of Messiah, the promise of Jesus. And so as we enter in a time of remembrance, may we draw close to you. May we honor you as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. But more than just the sacrifice, the blessings that that sacrifice represents, the blessings of eternal life, the blessings of a hope of an eternal kingdom where Jesus sits on the throne as your rightful representative and fixes all that is wrong. In Jesus' name, amen.